0: Welcome back to Winged and Ready. I am your host, Diane Johnston, and I'm thrilled to have a colleague with me today, Justin Waring, who is an investment strategist in our chief investment office. And while he has a lot of impressive credentials behind him, one thing that Justin says that I love is his job really is to reduce the role of luck in investments. So, Justin, can you explain a little bit more about what that means and tell us about your background before we hop into our conversation on on how that is done?
1: Thanks for having me, Diane. Uh, Yeah, when it comes to investing, over the long term, a lot of the things work in your favor. Markets go higher. The world improves. Earnings growth is at your back. And so at the end of the day, the best thing that we can do as financial planners, as financial advisors, is to take care of all the things that interrupt that long-term improvement. So Mm -hmm. behavioral biases are one source of risk Mm -hmm. in the short term that we can really focus on because getting in your own way is often the biggest risk for investors, panicking when markets are down.
0: I love that you said that. I literally tell people when they ask me what my job is. I say my job is to help people get out of their own way, mm-hmm. as well as stick to itness. And you get crazy looks yeah. when you say that, but it's true. Behavioral bias is such an important part to success. So I hope you don't mind mm-hmm. digging into some of the elements of what behavioral finance is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think before we talk about behavioral finance and behavioral biases, I think it's helpful for us to think a little bit about how traditional finance came to be and what assumptions were made. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, it's a little bit like other areas of science where you start with some very simplifying assumptions and try to build frameworks around that. And then as the science develops, you learn where reality differs from theory. So traditional finance assumes that investors are rational and that markets are efficient, which means, you know, markets are always in incorporating all of the information available and that individual investors are making rational decisions about where to allocate their money and and how to how to manage risk over time. But behavioral finance helps us to explain the observation that we have bubbles and crashes and panics and it helps explain the difference between how we behave and how we Mm -hmm. how we would behave if we were rational
0: and to your point i mean simplistically put if investors were rational and and markets were efficient there would be no need for skill our jobs wouldn't be needed everybody would (laughs) skill would be irrelevant
1: Yeah, I still think there would be some value to having strategy that's specific to you and your personal circumstances, because even if we're all rational, we do still have different objectives to one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. There's a lot of the industry that would go away overnight because picking stocks and funds, which already isn't that important uh, to investor success, it gets overblown in the media, Uh, that that would be transparently um, unimportant overnight because there would be no way to outperform the market.
0: Right. And I, I believe too. I mean, we won't dig too much into theory, but that efficiency argument really is a, a foundational construct.
1: Yeah, like the idea that a lot of these behavioral biases ultimately come from what we call heuristics, at least like mental shortcuts mm-hmm. to help us make decisions quickly. Right. And you know, when you're when you're in a survival situation, the ability to know where to throw a spear to hit a woolly mammoth that's moving. And you, so you linearly forecast where it's going to go and throw the spear where it's going to go. That's really helpful when you're hunting woolly mammoths, but when you're hunting shopping carts, you don't need that skill.
0: Right.
1: And um, and you know some of those those shortcuts end up you know delivering us to the wrong location in the modern world.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we're going to explain to people today, and hopefully give them, pun intended, the right amount of confidence to get through <laughs> what. <laughs> 2023, I'm sure, is going to be another year that has some volatility in it, to say the least. I mean, we've already started the year with some volatility. We still have uncertainties that are overhanging the markets as well as our day-to-day lives. And how we come out of this from within the U.S. economy, with what's going on in Europe, and watching the gyrations in the markets and wondering where equities and bonds et cetera, are going to be going all the way mm-hmm. on how behavioral biases can play into investment success. Excellent. So what's your favorite behavioral bias to address, or how would you open up the conversation for somebody who is novice to the topic or, or new to learning about this?
1: Mm, I think my favorite behavioral bias is what's called myopic loss aversion, which is kind of a mouthful, but essentially it is anchored in the fact that the more often you look at market performance, uh, the more volatile the market appears to be, the more scary it seems to be. So if you look at the market every day, the S&P 500 every day, there's a 54% chance of seeing a gain that day and a 46% chance of seeing a loss that day. And that's looking at every daily return since 1926. But if you look at it every six months, the probability of seeing a gain goes up to seventy-four percent. So only a twenty-six percent chance of seeing a loss. If you look at it every five years, there's an eighty-eight percent chance of seeing a gain versus a twelve percent chance of seeing a loss. And we've never seen a loss over a twenty year time horizon. Mm. So I think it's important to think about, you know, this fun house I call it the fun house mirror effect. If you watch the news, you're not getting a accurate representation of the reality of long-term investing. You're getting these these snapshots of a much more volatile world that we don't really live in. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't need your money on a daily basis, it isn't a coin flip exercise. The odds are absolutely in your favor. Um, and so it's helpful for us to think about, well, wh- which dollars in my portfolio do I need in the next three to five years? Because that's where all the crazy stuff happens. You know, Historically, it's, it's taken three to five years in every bear market for a well diversified balanced portfolio to fully recover its losses. And so if you have dollars that are invested for 6 years or 7 years or 8 years, things that, you know, 20 years from now you're going to retire, those dollars are not subject to the same risk as the dollars that you need in the next 3 to 5 years. Right. And so there's really two investment experiences, you know, the money that you need in the short and medium term and the money you need in the long term. And your investment strategy should reflect if you do need to withdraw money from your portfolio in the next three to five years, it, it does make sense to have some lower risk on those assets. But the rest of your portfolio, where the, the probability of gain is virtually one hundred percent, you know, I, I think that you, you it's a good idea for you to have a much quote unquote riskier portfolio, a portfolio that's much more a- allocated to equities.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that you hit on was that time frame, and with what we went through in twenty twenty two from a calendar year basis, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the worst year in the market since 1927 on a calendar year basis. So if you're a new investor and you're coming into the markets for the first time and last year was your first experience, you really could have that emotional feeling that you're gonna lose everything, that it's never coming back.
1: Yeah, it certainly, it was the worst year for a 60-40 portfolio for 60% stocks, 40% bonds. It was the worst year ever for the bond market, uh, with a 12% loss for intermediate government bonds, um, and the first ever back-to-back loss for government bonds as well, first ever. That's crazy to me. Um, and so, but it was only the seventh worst year for stocks for the S&P 500. It's had much better. It's had much better years, of course, but it's also had much worse years. You know, the the S&P 500 was down about 18%. But you know, in 2008, it was down twice that much. Right. It was down 37%. Uh, but yeah, when we are in these these environments where our portfolios are losing money, even if, we, even if we know that we don't need the money for a long time, it can be very scary and, and disheartening to experience these losses. And the, the other part of myopic loss aversion is, is the observation that we feel the pain of losses about twice as powerfully as we feel the pleasure of gains. And this is true for humans. It's true for monkeys. They did this great experiment with uh, capuchin monkeys, where they would offer them a plate of one apple slice or two apple slices. And 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 capuchin monkeys are pretty smart, so they they'll choose the two apple slices to get the most apple return that they can get. Uh, but the doctors decided to to switch it up, and half the time they would uh, add an extra apple slice to the single apple slice tray. And half the time they would take away one of the apple slices from the two apple slice tray. So Mm. the expected apple slice return for either selection was one and a half. But the monkeys were much more upset when the two apple slice turned into a one apple slice tray versus, you know, they're, they're obviously get a little bit of pleasure out of one apple slice turning into two. And so even though the expected return was the same for both, both 80% of the monkeys would choose the single apple slice tray with the, with the chance of a bonus apple slice, because it just feels a lot better to have that potential upside than to have that potential downside. And for investors, unfortunately, especially the way that we frame our investments, it is easy for us to get into what we call anchoring, we anchor oh. to the best value that our portfolio has ever had. Mm-hmm. And anything other than that is a loss. Well, that's a terrible mindset. Uh, to be stuck in because markets are volatile and right. you're going to see a drawdown from your all-time high pretty frequently. And so that's a pretty miserable experience to, to to live in. Whereas if you were to anchor to something else, like the amount that you put into your portfolio to begin with, it would be a much more healthy mindset for viewing your, your day-to-day market performance.
0: Right. You have that one piece of information that you mentally and emotionally anchor yourself toward not only does it impact how you feel, I love what you were saying about the monkeys and we often say it's like taking candy from a baby. That also Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) describes that loss aversion reaction. Loss aversion is something I say to my clients all the time. Last year was a tough year and even if they performed better than the markets, they're still losing money. It's not the happiest thing to say, oh, you're beating the markets, but you've still lost money. However, I do say, hey, you remember when you're beating the markets and you've made more money, I want you to feel twice as good when that happens <laughs> because <laughs> our human tendency is to have that loss aversion where, the, where that gratification of making a gain on your investment is not as satisfying. It doesn't feel as good it is outweighed, unfortunately, by the discomfort, worry, sadness that's associated with losses. And it, I'm like underscoring everything you said because then if you anchor to that high point in your portfolio or what I like to call the backyard barbecue conversations, you're talking to a friend or a family member about what their portfolio is doing. Everyone shares whatever instant they've anchored to and then creates almost like a herd mentality of loss aversion, (laughs) I just wanna say. Yeah. Don't have those conversations. You're not gonna feel great about yourself or your portfolio and it's not gonna really, it's not an apples to apples discussion because humans naturally have a tendency to anchor to one point and that's the reference point that they're gonna share when they're talking to you.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like watching Instagram and thinking everyone else's life is so much better than mine. Everyone is always on vacation and enjoying life, and I'm I'm inside watching this on Instagram. It's like that's not – everyone else is on Instagram watching other people, you know, share pictures from their vacation. Not everyone is always on vacation. It's just we don't take pictures of ourselves sitting in our apartment or – <laughs> that's, that's not normal. And the other thing is, I think, also when you try to re, you know, recall your investment decisions, it's, there is sort of a mechanism that makes it easier to remember our successes than our failures and certainly more likely to share them with other people. It's a little bit embarrassing to admit that you've lost money. And so when you talk to other people about their investments, I'm not saying that they're lying intentionally, but they may not be giving you the full picture mm-hmm. because they will tend to forget or, or underrepresent times when they've had some bad luck. Or made bad decisions.
0: It's very true. Um, I also do institutional consulting, so I'm often talking to committees. And when people hear that you work in finance, I'm sure you get this with your family and friends all the time, they expect the first thing out of your mouth to be talking to a recommendation or mm-hmm. having some prognostication around the markets or a clever statistic or analysis to share. But the first thing I like to hear, is, and not share, but first thing I like to hear from people is to talk about decisions they've made in the past and how that's made them feel and what the outcomes were just open up that discussion because you can see where they may have anchored to something or have hindsight bias you know going back to how you introduce yourself of reducing the role of luck and invest the more that you can identify those behaviors before you even come even close to talking about a portfolio or investments the more success they will have. If you could unpack what I just said, I would be really, really grateful because I think a lot of times people don't understand that and they, they think it's a little too soft or hooey for talking about a sophisticated investment allocation.
1: Yeah, I think what you're talking about is really linking into something that we all struggle with a little bit, which is that what investment strategy appears to be when you watch the news is very different from the reality of what's important and what and the ways that financial advisors and financial planners can add value. Because the stuff on TV is what I call lowest common denominator. It's the things that could be important to someone, but aren't important to anyone in particular. Mm -hmm. So picking individual stocks, trying to trade where the market's gonna go. That's not as important as helping manage your taxes for your personal circumstances. It's not as important as building the right asset allocation to meet your goals. It's not giving you any advice that's gonna help you behave better in the market. In fact, most of the time the market you know, the the news is trying to scare you and give right. you more things to worry about. And so when you talk to people who aren't well versed in in investment strategy research and in, in financial planning research, and that maybe they're more tuned into the entertainment aspects of financial news. Mm-hmm. They are expecting you to behave like the talking heads on TV and give right. them, you know, give them an, a forecast, give them a trade idea based on something you saw in the news. And it's like that's there's a place for that that's that can add value, but it's it's not one of the high probability ways to add value. And so I think the other aspect of what you mentioned is that uh, I love this quote from Vernon Sanders Law. Uh, experience is a hard teacher because she gives the test first and the lesson afterwards. Mm. I love hearing people talk about their experiences and I love to share failures with other investors because, you know, this is an Eleanor Roosevelt quote. I'll paraphrase it because I can't remember the exact wording, but, um, you, you better learn from other people's experiences because you won't live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself.
0: Right, yes, I agree with that. I was raised the youngest of three children and my father always encouraged me to learn from my older sibling's mistake to that end. And when you have the ability to share, really transparently dig into those decision-making heuristic, you can set yourself up for success and investments and that's where that stick to itness comes into play, Right. If your portfolio can reflect your philosophies and your beliefs, I like to say if it can reflect the ethos of the committee or the family or the mission or the goals, whatever the right ethos that needs to be reflected, then when you hit those times of volatility, because you believe in it, you're going to have a lower tendency to want to make a change or make a knee-jerk reaction. Before we hit record on this podcast, we were talking about missing the best days in the market and you cleverly brought up missing the worst days i would love to touch on that too
1: yeah i think again this is one of these aspects of behavioral biases is sometimes it's okay to lie a little bit <laughs> and in order to encourage good behavior so if you were to look at long term investing and you and you and you take it all the worst days in the market you'd have much better returns if you look at if you take out the best days in the market you'd have much worse returns and yeah the, the underlying truth is that the best days and the worst days happen right next to each other they they're usually literally one day after the other um, because really, really mar- volatile market environments uh, where we have the, the largest one day return and the largest uh, one day loss, they tend to be clustered around turning points. And if we go back to 1926 and we look at the, the 10 best ever gains and the 10 best ever losses, over half of them are concentrated in just three months in that 70 plus year history. That's crazy. And so, when those periods come the most important thing is to stay invested and 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 keep your investment strategy so that you can yes you're going to have to live through the worst days uh, but you're also staying in the market for the best days panicking in those moments is the best way to miss out on long-term growth because those are the periods where i hate cryptocurrencies and investments uh, you know i i hate the speculative nature of those those vehicles but they've come up with some very clever words around this so diamond hands is uh, is slang for being able to stick with an investment regardless of how volatile it is and anyone who panics and sells one of these really volatile instruments during a during a volatile market environment is called paper hands so i think very silly. Uh, I'm not a big fan of speculative investments, but I like those terms. Rock, so be, paper, be, scissor, but a, with
0: diamonds as the rock. I like
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Be a hodler and uh, and, uh, and be a diamond hands and hold on to your investments through those periods, and you're going to outperform all your peers. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the most important thing is to start with a well-diversified portfolio that yes. gives you the highest probability of making, um, of achieving your long-term goals, like, like we talked about at the beginning, reduce the role of, of luck in your investment success. Things like speculative investments and cryptocurrency and, and concentrated positions, these hurt your probability of success because you're banking, you're trying to basically win the lottery. Um, and so that's not a good place to start from. But as long as you've got a really well diversified portfolio that's balanced between stocks and bonds and alternatives and commodities, you do not need to fear market cycles. They they will resolve themselves, and the market will, and your portfolio will continue to gain over the long term.
0: That's so true. And when you talked about that concentrated bucket of time when those really volatile days happen, when people talk about wanting to move to the sidelines after a market decline, and I'm lucky enough to have been through a couple of market cycles at this point in my career. And and a lot of those market cycles, I also was acting as an institutional investor. So needing to actively make investment decisions and execute during those times. When the market declines and has a severe down day, it's terrifying. But when it turns around, as you said, often the the next day or very close to it, I call those rip your face off rallies. Because... (laughs) they are way more violent on the upside than the downside was trust me when when you're when you're at the point of execution you really feel that cuz you can't keep up with the rally and if, if you're on the sidelines and you miss that you've hurt your long-term success unequivocally right. unequivocally you've hurt your long-term success so that i want to just touch on one more behavior if you don't mind you know that need to go to the sidelines that need to listen to the talking heads that can cause a lot of panic during extreme volatility, it's herd behavior. Uh, How does following the herd also impair an investor's success in their portfolio?
1: Well, there's an interesting story. Um, During World War II, they were trying to figure out how to put armor on the planes. And so they they were basically taking data from returning bombers to try to figure out what's the least amount of armor we can put on these planes because it adds weight and reduces range, but put it in the most effective places to protect against being downed. And so they did an analysis of all these returning bombers. They recorded exactly where all the bullet holes were on these returning bombers. And they were like, all right, well, this is where the bullets are likely to hit. And so we should armor those areas. And um, this man, Abraham Wald, who was a statistician who was new to the group he said wait hold on that's not the right way to interpret this data these bombers returned we we are missing the data from all of the bombers that that got shot down and so actually we should put armor where the bullet holes aren't because those were the fatal bullet holes Mm -hmm. and that's where we need to put the armor and so when we talk about the the reaction to market losses I think that it's a similar thing. When the market is down, you feel like you've lost money, but when the market goes up and you're not invested, it doesn't feel the same type of loss. It is a loss. If you sell at the bottom and you miss out on on the return as the market recovers to a new all- all-time high and continues recovering, that's a permanent loss. Mm-hmm. The temporary loss isn't real damage. It's just pain. There's a difference between pain and damage. And so... We should be thinking about these short-term market disruptions as pain as a separate category from the long-term damage of not taking enough risk, of not being invested enough in stocks, which is more likely to l- deliver permanent damage to your portfolio growth. And so we should armor where the bullet holes aren't. We should be building portfolios that give us the most growth possible and then build strategies to make sure that we can stay invested in them through thick and thin. That's, in my opinion, that's the best way to deal with behavioral biases and and this loss aversion aspect is let's treat both problems as complementary problems, rather than trying to build a portfolio that this magical, mystical, hypothetical portfolio that gives you the best return and you never in it never is painful to own. Right. That's, that's an impossible feat to accomplish because there is a trade-off between the risk of your portfolio and the, its potential return. And so we need to build portfolios that, that deliver on the return side and then build strategies and frameworks that help us manage the risk side on its own.
0: I love that. I love that summary and I hope our listeners today got a better understanding for how we look at risk tolerance, which sounds like a very quantitative tool when you're thinking about risk tolerance, but there's really so much emotional and behavioral elements to it. And if you can find the right behaviors and get that portfolio to reflect the right behaviors for your unique circumstance, then that's how you find your successes and you avoid the pitfalls of making a a mistake based on an emotion. So thank you so much for being here today. Do you have anything else you wanna share with our listeners as we wrap up? This has been such a generous conversation.
1: Um uh, thank you so much for having me. I was wondering your experience with dealing with boards of investors. Mm-hmm. What's something that you've learned about the way that individual behavioral biases, do they balance each other out in a group environment or do they or does the most anxious person infect the room?
0: I wouldn't say that the most anxious person infects the room. It is not too different from going into any type of group meeting setting where you have to be careful and mindful around herd mentality. There are tends to be one or two people who everyone will look towards, whether that's because they have the role of being a committee head or they may be more senior within the organization. And it's making sure that everybody has a voice and shares an experience to really even out the behaviors as a committee, especially if there's a process, a voting process, where the committee will likely have to go to the board for approvals as well. So you really want to arm them with the opportunity to take the right choices to the board so that the right mechanics are implemented for their portfolio and that's usually reflected within their investment policy statement so it really rolls up into governance and interestingly the governance is so important because that sets a blueprint that will put into place that armor you were talking about Um, Mm -hmm. really neutralizing one person's ability to sway an investment choice or an entire committee one way. And as you think about a committee, a lot of people, they're not on that for their full-time job. It could be maybe Mm -hmm. 20% of their job, and perhaps it's a two or three-year commitment. So you really want to get the policy and the governance in place that is evergreen and protects the portfolio and the and the mission of the portfolio and the mission of the organization away from any one person being able to mutate or change direction too much.
1: Thank you for sharing that. That sounds like it's very applicable to families as well because these types of responsibilities are are not shared equally among family members and and you know the the attention paid to Investments tends to skew to one family member over everyone else. So building that type of framework to protect you against against herd mentality, against against individual behavioral bias, it sounds like a good strategy for for every family as oh, well.
0: Absolutely. And especially when you get into multi-generational wealth, as well as business owners or business owners who are exiting. They often are a figurehead for a family, and you need to get the family around the table. I often will go in and will tell one family member, if there needs to be an uncomfortable moment, you can turn that on me. Like, let me be the one that Mm -hmm. takes it so that the family can really start to communicate and open up dialogue. Establishing that communication is the most important element to getting a successful outcome.
1: That sounds like that adds a lot of value.
0: And it's nice, people who are my clients or who work with me know that I am a person who likes to think of my day-to-day as a practice. My dad was a wonderful family practitioner and he took care of so many people. And I really like to think that I'm doing that every day is taking care of people. And it's about financial health and wellness. Everything will fall into place if we can really get that communication and that health and that wellness approach in place to neutralize these heuristics so that the portfolio can be durable for whatever the mission or the goals are. So thank you for asking.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, this was such a pleasure and I hope it unravels some things for investors at the top of the year so that they can make sure their portfolios stay evergreen for themselves. And of course, I I think it's fair to say, Justin, if anyone has any questions, they can reach out to us and, and we're happy to have an informational conversation or or help people understand how they can start implementing this for themselves. Absolutely. All right, thank you so much. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you very soon. Take care. Take care. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG member FINRA SIPC.